0: Welcome to this APTA podcast. I'm Troy Elliott, and thanks for joining us. There's a good chance that by now you've already heard about a major study of post-acute rehab called the Therapy Outcomes in Post-Acute Care Settings, or TOPS study, sponsored by APTA and the American Occupational Therapy Association. That study, which involved 1.4 million Medicare patients who received post-acute care in SNF, ERF, or through home health, is getting attention because its findings call into question the idea held by some policymakers that post-acute care payment policy should evolve toward more of a one-size-fits-all system. This isn't the first time that idea has been challenged, of course, but the TOPS study adds significant depth to the argument. The sheer size of the study is significant, of course, but TOPS is also unique in the ways it compares utilization and outcomes across settings. The conclusions APTA and AOTA reach about policy through the study are ultimately based on what was uncovered about the patient populations in those various settings and the ways rehab was being delivered, specifically the quantity of that rehab and its relationship to functional gains and rehospitalizations. In this podcast, we're going to take a closer look at the top study, its findings, and the data points that support those findings. And we've got just the person to help us take a tour. Jason Falvey, physical therapist who served as an advisor on the study's methodology and analysis. In addition to his involvement with TOPS, Jason is assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Science and in the Department of Epidemiology and Public Health at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. He's also board certified in geriatric physical therapy and a well-known researcher who's been published in many of the top-ranking rehab, geriatric, and orthopedic journals. Thanks for being here, Jason.
1: Great. Great to be here with you, Troy. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Now, let's start out uh, that I mentioned the size of this study is something that sets it apart uh, and the fact that it includes SNFs, ERFs, and home health. But what else makes this study special, in your opinion?
1: That's yeah, a, <clears throat> a great question, Troy. And, you know, this study is really unique in terms of its ability to be nationally representative and not not specific to one agency or chain of agencies or chain of skilled nursing facilities. So a lot of this data that we've seen before has either been internal, um, which has belonged to a a network of facilities that may have different care processes than their their peers, even in the same geographic region. Um, So I think that's a major plus, is that we have a nationally representative sample Um, of these practice patterns and of uh, patient populations from across the country and we're able to leverage information from the preceding hospital stay. So often when we have internal data from home health agencies or, or facility networks, we don't have good detailed information on what happened to that patient during the hospitalization, which certainly has an influence on the treatment we select for them. And the intensity and the gains we would expect. Uh, so I think those are two things that set this apart.
0: Well, well let's let's start at the big picture level. Uh, the, the study produced three major three major broad findings related to patient characteristics across settings, changes in functional status in each type of setting, and rehospitalizations.
1: Uh, what are those main takeaways from each of the findings? Yeah. Um, so in terms of the patient populations, I think this study solidified what many of us in the therapy community already had a strong sense of, that a, each population of patients that are using home care, skilled nursing facilities, and inpatient rehab are very distinct. They have distinct patterns of comorbidity. They have distinct patterns of, of um. You know, geriatric factors such as you know the percentage of patients that are over age 85, the percentage that have comorbidities such as dementia or depression, um, and perhaps maybe even more interestingly in light of conversations about social determinants of health in the news is they have distinct patterns of socioeconomically disadvantaged populations that they serve, all of which really do influence um, how we treat, manage, and the outcomes we would expect for these patients.
0: Do you have, and that's differences, uh, but we're still dealing with Medicare beneficiaries at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Do you have an idea of uh, the degree to which the top sample was representative of the larger Medicare beneficiary population?
1: Sure. So, I mean, this this population was hospitalized Medicare beneficiaries who used post-acute care after that hospitalization so as you'd expect, these patients are generally sicker than the, the normal Medicare population. They're more likely to have dementia. They're more likely to have um, additional comorbidities. Um, and they have, a lot of, they have a lot of chronic health issues that kind of PTs would have to navigate alongside um, treating the primary condition that they were hospitalized for. So, you look at the characteristics of of these
0: of these patients now within the the, um, the study cohort did Did anything surprise you about the characteristics that were that kind of emerged over the course of the study?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, in terms of my practice experience and my research experience has mostly been in home health, but I've certainly worked clinically in all of these settings, and some things, um, like the the percentage of patients with dementia weren't so surprising. But what was surprising to me was that 29% of the cohort spent one or more days in the intensive care unit prior to being admitted to post-acute care. That was eye-opening to me, um, given what we know about post-intensive care syndrome and the impacts of of critical illness, especially on older adults. Um, That isn't information that's typically collected on the home health OASIS assessment. Um, There is no indicator for whether a patient was in the ICU. Um, and it's not included on the MDS assessment for skilled nursing facilities or on the ERFPI for, for, for the IRF facilities. So taking that into account, those are massive complexities that um, certainly challenge the ability for therapists to work with and have patients make functional gains. Yet, you know, you know, we're really encouraged to find that these patients were making um, improvements and being able to successfully discharge into the community
0: and and this this may get uh sort of dovetail into what you just said and and before we move on to therapy hours and improvement and some of the data points, I want to ask you one more question about the the characteristics i mean, yes, you point out that there are some significant differences, but you know at the same time, the chart book uh, comments point out that there are sort of these i don 't know surface level commonalities between the patient populations in these settings right so You know, I'm thinking, and I'm putting my CMS hat on here. And so, so what's the problem in viewing those commonalities through, you know, a single lens? For example, it says between 24% and 40% of patients across all three settings were admitted to the ICU during hospitalization. When it comes to rehabilitation, why should it matter which post-acute care setting they're in? I mean, aren't the challenges
1: all the same? Yeah, I mean, and that's the argument that CMS will certainly present us with. Um, However. Um, I think what we're seeing is something like dementia, for example, you would expect patients to recover more slowly um, and require additional skilled therapy to help them reach their functional goals in many cases, and we would expect that those patients are much more likely based on our data to be in skilled nursing facilities And probably be receiving a higher level of care um, that also uh, can extend longer. So a skilled nursing facility stay can go up to 100 days under Medicare payment, whereas a typical inpatient rehab stay clinically, those patients are usually tried to be discharged to the community within 14 days. Home care, um, those episodes right now with new payment methodologies are only 30 days. So a patient that we would expect to take longer time to recover or would re- require um, a high frequency of therapy, those patients would be most appropriate for a sniff. And by putting all of these, pa- you know, these payment systems together and making it site neutral, it may end up reducing the amount of therapy received by the patients with the highest need. Um, and I think those are the, those are the patients in, in most payment reforms that are disproportionately harmed or patients with the highest level of needs because cutting off of a patient that has, you know, is already getting a lot doesn't seem like much, um, but it disproportionately may cause the most harm.
0: Now, in terms of um, uh, moving on to the data that contributed to the findings uh, on hours of therapy and improvement and rehospitalization, um, before we get there, I'd like to ask you about the study's approach to um, cross-setting. what was done to make it possible to even make comparisons in the first place?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that was an innovation of this study and probably something that will be challenged the most externally because this is a very difficult research area. Um, So the consultants that we worked with, the the firm that did all of the analysis, had developed a method um, with prior clients um, that put all of the ADL scales that are used in the home healthcare OASIS, the MDS form, and the irf which are the assessment forms used by Medicare to characterize patients when they enter and exit the facilities, and they put those ADL measurements all on one similar scale and were able to validate that that was an effective and reliable way um, to measure functional gain. So that really did um, provide an even playing field, so to speak, to, to look at the functional gain and the average functional level for each of these patients giving further evidence that they are distinctly different. Um, And then things like readmissions were nice because we had claims data, we could certainly analyze readmissions using common Medicare methodologies, um, which we could apply across settings and not rely on internal facility data.
0: Yeah, and and I know that there have been studies in the past that have touched on post-acute care and um, outcomes, but within the um, sort of within a very narrow focus of a of, of of a group of of clinics or a certain setting and all that. So this is the first one that really really crosswalks all that. I would I would think. Uh, okay, so let's move on to the data in each category: sniff, ERF, and home health. You established low. Uh, what you call typical and high intensity groups in terms of hours of therapy received, and then you looked at overall numbers in terms of uh, in each setting as well as breakdowns uh, arranged by those by three major diagnoses: stroke, congestive heart failure, and joint replacement. Then you compared that with the changes in function and thirty-day hospital readmissions. I'm just wondering if you can break down sort of the highlights from each group and tell us what the study uncovered.
1: Yeah, that's. Uh... Uh, That's a really important um, question, and I think you know with the involvement of the clinical, um, the clinical input that APTA um, members provided, I think we're really important in identifying that you know heart failure, stroke, and joint replacements may have very different needs, and we needed to make sure that the effective therapy was equivalent across all those diagnoses. Um, And we were really encouraged to see that the overall study findings pointed towards the fact that typical physical therapy you know which we defined as people in the middle 50 percentile uh, the middle 50th percentile of, of the you know the volume of therapy received those patients typically did the best across all care settings um you know, with the exception of home care um, and i think we are really encouraged to see that the low intensity group the bottom 10 percentile um, we we clearly saw a pattern where those patients did worse. So the patients who received the the least amount of therapy had substantially higher risk of readmission and substantially reduced levels of function. Um, So that was the really clear picture that we saw. Um, And I think across all the settings, we saw the benefits of therapy tended to continue, but were a lot less uh, pronounced when you went between typical and high intensity, which we defined as the, the top 10 percentile. Um, which is something that we found in prior research um, that I've done and other people have done using Medicare data. Um, and I think the caution there is we, we do have a message that um, therapy you know, could be overutilized in some cases, but it's clear that we can't cut therapy aggressively or we have a high risk of harm to patients. Um, so that was really, you know in terms of readmissions and function, those were our really clear findings. And we were encouraged to see that those findings were almost identical across stroke, and heart failure and, and joint replacement. So that says it's not a protocol, it's not an orthopedic population that primarily benefits, that we're really addressing whole person level concerns, you know, physical function, we're probably helping with caregiver support, helping patients acquire durable medical equipment and training them how to use it. These are all roles of the therapists that are hard to measure in this type of data. But it's clear from the reduced readmissions that therapists are bridging some of these other non you know non physical gaps in care and delivering interventions beyond exercise that are clearly having value. So here
0: we're really talking about um, um, the importance of uh, the clinical decision making skill of the individual therapist and 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 understanding and knowing and doing what's what's needed and and uh, obviously not in excess of what's needed, but definitely not minimal of what's needed. So again, it's another here's another indication, I would guess, of why this sort of one size fits all approach is not necessarily the best way to go, right?
1: Yeah, I mean absolutely. I think anytime you combine these payment systems, you're going to, you know, really reduce the extremes. You're going to reduce the amount of therapy provided to the healthiest patients. Um, because those patients may end up going without in a system that kind of condenses everybody towards the middle. And as we discussed earlier, the patients with the highest care needs, and these might be your cognitively impaired patients or your patients who have you know, multiple comorbidities, your frail patients, those patients are likely to receive less in a, um, in a, in a system that um, puts all of the post-acute care settings in, in kind of one payment bucket that's what we anticipate will happen and for the marginal patient who may not receive any therapy they may go from the you know being in the top 30% to being in the bottom 10% if you know their needs are determined to be not as important and we think that that could lead to harms like re- increased readmissions or or decreases in functional gain
0: and and the harms are uh, this is part of i think what the strength of the study is the harms show um it would happen like there will be no winners in this in this particular if we go to a system like this because the harm the potential harms are there in all three um, uh, post acute care settings because of the mix of comorbidities and patient characteristics that are present in all three. Right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't see a scenario where there's any patient population who gets tremendous value or additional benefits um, out of this kind of payment system. And I, I think in the, in the example of home health care's recent payment reform, um, the only patients who really probably had increased access to care were patients who had non-rehabilitation needs. So needed aggressive nursing for IV or wound care, payments for those patients increased, but payments for almost every single rehabilitation need group um, were, were dropped. And I think, That is really concerning, and and we can kind of see without data, you know, know, a uniform post-acute care payment system is very likely to decrease incentives even further to delivering volumes of care that are going to disproportionately affect uh, patients on the margins.
0: Before we wrap up, one last question. Well, maybe it's two questions. We've talked about this study in terms of its implications for policymaking, But um, as a clinician, as a member of the profession, what do you think this study tells PTs about their practices? What does it tell us about the profession? Um, And what should PTs and PTAs walk away with from this study in terms of their own work with patients?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think probably the most important question that we've talked about today You know, I've been wearing my researcher hat during our conversation and certainly thinking about this from, you know, data and propensity score matching and all of these sophisticated statistical methods. But I started in my career as a physical therapist, you know, and I spent the first four years after I graduated from physical therapy school, you know, getting board certified in geriatrics, working in home care in rural and disadvantaged neighborhoods and, and working with the very real issues that patients had you know, that were in front of you. Um, many of these issues like unmet needs for durable medical equipment or you know, food insecurity where you're arranging meals on wheels because that patient can't get out to the grocery store. Those are very real concerns that our patients deal with that um, therapists are, are helping manage every day. Those aren't captured in this data. The the effect of therapists on helping patients, you know, participate in the community and do meaningful, recreational and social things outside the home is not captured well in this type of data. But I think these findings really point towards how well therapists are doing at helping spring, you know, those kind of opportunities for patients into life. Um, I think therapists, this data really shows that therapists across all the settings, are setting patients up for success. They're preparing in skilled nursing and inpatient rehab facilities, they're preparing patients to get home successfully, setting up the equipment and caregiver support that they need and clearly cutting therapy and reducing that opportunity for patients is likely to both increase risk for readmissions, which is important from a health policy standpoint, but also decreasing the amount of time patients can spend at home with their caregivers or loved ones. Um, So therapists really are, you know, putting patients first and getting them set up for success with with discharge planning. Um, Same thing in home care. You know, those therapists are in the home, they're setting um, up equipment for patients to reduce fall risk and and keep them out of the hospital. And while that's an important healthcare system metric, um, I think it, you know, it has almost immeasurable impact on patients' quality of life. Um, So I think we can take away from this study that therapists are doing way more than just exercising with patients in these facilities. It's more than ankle pumps, it's more than range of motion exercises, and therapists are practicing to the top of their scope. And I think this data really shows the value of what they're doing, not just in functional improvement, um, but also really, you know, making meaningful gains to the healthcare system.
0: Well, once again, thank you, Jason Falvey, for taking the time to walk us through this uh, important new research. I'm sure we'll be hearing about this in the months and years to come as the healthcare system continues to wrestle with what we hope is an evolution toward patient, uh, true patient-centered value-based care. As a reminder to listeners, you can access a study summary and chart book with more details on the study at apta.org. Just search TOPS, T-O-P-S, all caps, in the APTA website search bar. And of course, that's not all you'll find on APTA.org. So definitely check us out, visit the website, and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, it's uh, Twitter's at, at APTA Tweets. APTA podcasts like this one are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, or by visiting APTA.org podcasts. I'm Troy Elliott, and thanks for listening.